So, this week, week number four of Incarnation and Atonement, and we are going to be looking at the humanity of Christ. So, again, brief, brief recap. Uh, week one, we kind of looked at the history of thought in terms of the last two, three hundred years or so of Western thought as it relates to um, theories of knowledge and specifically theories of knowledge as it relates to Jesus and what is the grounds for our authority and um, grounds. I don't know, understand why I'm being, lo- oh, you had to open a can, okay, all right, you should have just done it. Now it's 10 seconds in of being distracted and focusing on you opening your can. All right, for all the podca- podcast listeners, Chandler had to open up her seltzer water. Uh, so anyway, we were looking at the history of thought uh, in, in Western civilization and uh, just learning uh, how we got where we are today, because where we are today has, uh, has uh, certainly a certain idea about Jesus, and that's, it's not new. We're standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us, and there are a lot of bad ideas about Jesus uh, out there in the world, and um, much of that is the product of, of uh, thinking over the past several hundred years. Uh, but then we turn to just hermeneutical issues, interpretive issues, how do we rightly uh, interpret the Bible, um, and how do we do interpretation. We talked about authorial intent, we talked about three horizons of Scripture, uh, we talked about topology, promise fulfillment, all of these good things. Uh, and then week two, we looked at the storyline of Scripture, um, understanding that when Jesus came onto the scene and the apostles are preaching Christ and Him crucified, they're not preaching from the New Testament. They're preaching the Old Testament. Uh, they're writing the New Testament for our benefit. And so in looking at the storyline, uh, Luke 24, when Jesus is talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, he is rebuking them for their unbelief and slowness of heart because they are not believing the Scriptures as it relates to his resurrection and his work as a Messiah. So we spent week two in storyline uh, particularly trying to understand how Old Testament prophets and authors were looking forward to the Messiah, and they saw it as uh, one event, one salvation event that was going to usher in the fullness of the new creation. And we uh, now understand, in light of uh, Christ and standing on this side of the cross, uh, that the fullness of God's revelation is a, is a two-part series. Uh, one, he had to come and deal with sin in order to redeem us, and now he is the first man of the new creation, and his resurrection of the first fruits of our resurrection, and we are new creatures in Christ. We are a part of the new creation, glimpses of what's coming, uh, but not yet in its fullness, and so we live in this present age called the last days, and the age to come that the Old Testament would talk about, we now understand as the new creation, new heavens and new earth. Um, and so, that, that week, looking at the biblical storyline, we're going to go back to that uh, this evening to jump back into some of, some of the ideas that we, we started there, just talking about the humanity of Christ and tracing that from the Old Testament. Uh, last week, we looked at the deity of Christ, and we saw that He is very God of very God. 
uh, God the Son. Uh, the, the, our triune God works inseparably in saving us, and the Father sent the Son and the power of the Spirit to save us. The Spirit has applied that work of the Son to our, uh, to our lives. Uh, and so now Jesus is the recipient of our worship and praise and prayers because He is God Himself. He is Yahweh revealed in the flesh. Um, and this week, we're looking at the humanity of Christ, or the human nature of Christ, uh, and looking at, looking at hermeneutical issues and history thought, then looking at Old Testament storyline. We're trying to build, um, build a case here for a proper Christology, uh, a proper understanding of Christ. Last week we looked at deity, this week we look at humanity, and so next week, and we might spend two weeks, I, I don't know if we will spend two weeks or not, uh, but we'll ex- at least spend next week looking at how the early church took all of these truths that we've been meditating on for the past few weeks, and how they synthesized them in the early church creeds, specifically Chalcedon in 451. So next week we'll start, we'll say, okay, we know that Jesus is God. We know that Jesus is human. How in the world do we put that together and think about that rightly? And so the early church has done us a great service uh, at Nicaea in 325 and Chalcedon in 451, putting together Trinitarian relations and a proper Christology uh, so that we might today not be heretics because we're going to find that there was lots and lots of heresy in the first few hundred years of the church. All right, so jumping into the humanity of Christ, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 22, asks this question. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? And the answer, their answer, I think the right answer, is Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. So the Westminster divines would answer, how did Christ, the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Okay, so we're just going to kind of unpack some of that uh, this evening. Uh, before, before we jump into uh, Orthodox thinking, just a couple of early her- uh, heresies. Uh, yes, Robin, you may have the password. Um, you're welcome. Uh, early heresies that are going to affect our understanding of the humanity of Christ. Last week we looked at deity and we talked about Arianism. Arianism would argue there was a time where the Son was not. He is the first creature, first created being. Uh, They're taking that firstborn language and not understanding it in terms of biblical categories. So we looked at Arianism, which would be today modern-day modern, modern day Jehovah's Witnesses are, are in that strain of Arianism. Uh, in terms of the uh, first couple of hundred years of the church, uh, the two primary 
heresies that we're looking at as it relates to humanity is what we would call proto-Gnosticism and Docetism. All right, so I'm going to write it down. These are English words for all of you people who were fussy last week, uh, but they are coming from the Greek. So, proto-Gnosticism and Docetism. <laughs> no. All right. Proto-Gnosticism. This is Greek, uh, from the Greek gnosis, knowledge. Uh, we've talked about it in sermons uh, a bit. Uh, this isn't full-blown Gnosticism that you'd see later that uh, kind of helped to be the start of uh, Islam. Um, but proto-Gnosticism, heavily influenced by Greek Platonic thought, and the, the idea is that, uh, first off, there's a secret knowledge that saves, saves people, secret wisdom. Uh, and that wisdom was encapsulated in Jesus. He was the source of this secret wisdom. He gave it to the apostles, and now the apostles have given that to people uh, who are going to be saved, uh, people who have proper understanding, yada, yada, yada. So, um, Gnosticism uh, tied to secret knowledge. But what's, what's important for our discussion tonight is that proto-Gnosticism would have heavily downplayed the, the, the physical body and would have strongly, strongly, inf- uh, strongly um, pushed that the spiritual or immaterial aspect of a person is the true person or the true, the true aspect of who you are. Okay, so they, there are several different strains. Like some thought, some proto-Gnostics and Gnostics thought the, the body is completely terrible, it's wicked, the soul, the spirit, that's not touched by the world, that's good and innocent, uh, that's what's going to exist forever. And... Others would say, uh, well, it's not necessarily that the body is wicked and so that you need to like um, give yourself to like monasticism and fasting and going without uh, in order to starve the physical body. The body is wicked, but since it doesn't touch the spirit of the soul, you can just do whatever you want to. Uh, you know, sexual liberty, do whatever you want with your physical body, doesn't touch the real you, the spiritual you. Uh, and so proto, proto-Gnostics would have downplayed the, the humanity of Christ. Uh, the, the physical, corporal body of Christ, not, not important. And so they would have downplayed the resurrection uh, and all aspects of the incarnation. Because again, at the end of the day, the spirit is what's important. Um, now, docetism, that's from the Greek dokeo, that is to appear. Uh, so docetism was the idea that, that Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't actually fully human with a, with a true physical body and true soul. He only appeared to be, uh, appeared to be fully human. Um, so again, incomplete humanities. There are going to be more heresies that come along. Those are the first couple of that are early in the, in the history of the church. And we'll look at more of them next week, like, Apollinarianism is another one uh, that, will, uh, that will diminish uh, Christ's humanity. And, and you see some 
modern-day Apollinarian uh, proponents and, uh, and Christian philosophy. Uh, so, number three, what does the biblical storyline require of the Messiah? And my, my argument is when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament makes it really, really clear that the Messiah's got to be a man. He's got to be human. And there are a variety of reasons uh, for that. We're going to look at just a few. So, what is the storyline of uh, require the Messiah? It requires that he be a man. Last week, the, the question we could have asked is, what did the biblical storyline require the Messiah? He's got to be Yahweh. And this week, it's, uh, he's, he's got to be a man. Uh, and so, 3.1, we're looking at uh, last Adam and true Israel. All right, so, uh, with this idea of biblical topology... Biblical topology, uh, this is not, this is not uh, we're not doing typological interpretation. We are just giving a literal, literal interpretation of typological structures and patterns that are in the Bible. So we're not doing some special voodoo with the text. What we're, what we're doing is, this is in the text, it's meant for us to be under, uh, understanding it this way, and because of progressive revelation over the the course of uh, redemptive history, later authors are picking up earlier authors' ideas as it relates to people and places and institutions, things, events, and that kind of stuff. And yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. So um, when, for example, when we are talking about metaphor. Um, when Muhammad Ali would talk about uh, being light as a butterfly, and we are interpreting him literally, we are interpreting what he is saying as metaphor. Uh, when we're interpreting him literalistically, we are saying, you are not as light as a butterfly. Do you know how much a butterfly weighs? It is very, very small. Very, very, very tiny in its grammage. Um, and Muhammad Ali would say, you were an idiot, because you are not interpreting me, uh, me according to the literal sense. He only stings, yeah, he does sting like a bee. Uh, yes, so we, we, we read metaphor as metaphor. Um, and we, we read types in the Bible typologically, uh, as, as they're intended by human and divine authors. And... What's the primary thing that's, that's undergirding the idea that we can even understand types across the storyline of Scripture when you've got such a diversity of authors? You've got one divine author, so essential for promise fulfillment and typological structure to be rightly understood, you have... You have unity across the canon because you have one divine author who is inspiring all the different human authors to write exactly what he wants them to write. So, as the last Adam, I, I, don't, I don't say second Adam. I know that that's common, um, and, and I don't want to say that's wrong um, because I know people who are like first Adam, second Adam in terms of Romans 5. But we're going we're gonna to talk about last Adam because I think particularly Gen the book of Genesis presents multiple Adams. Uh, in, in quotes, right? So, with, with Adam, 
and, and we want to expand Adam out a little bit because it's going to influence uh, our answers to 3, 3, 3, 4, and 3, 5. Um, but as the last Adam, what, what, is, what is special about Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 we've talked about? Like, just what's unique about him that's not necessarily the same for us? Okay, yeah, no sin, right? No sin, pre-fall. All right, so that becomes a big deal when... He does sin, right? <laughs> uh, will we talk about original sin? Um, what, what else is, is special about Adam that isn't necessarily the case for us? How did, how did Adam affect us? You, you know the answer to these questions. It's not, don't overthink it. Yeah, he's the head. He's a covenant head or federal head, right? So in, in the garden... He wasn't just representing himself, and he wasn't just representing Eve either, right? Who was he representing? All of us, right? So federal headship. Okay, what, what else about Adam? Uh, what, in whose image is he made? Image of God. Okay, so we, we get glimpses, right? So... Image and likeness of God, those are, those are synonyms. Um, referring to the same idea, we talked about image of God having two aspects, right? What are the two aspects of the image of God? Vertical and horizontal, right? So, we were created in God's image to rightly relate to Him in covenant relationship. And we have a horizontal aspect to being an image bearer, and that is we are to rightly relate to other image bearers and to the rest of creation. Okay, uh, so image of God, that's male and female, right? We're, we're going to see image of God picked up in Colossians 1 when we're talking about the sun. Uh, what else? Um, I mean, I'm, I mentioned it. What does Paul talk about in Romans 5? Because Romans 5... Paul explicitly says, Adam is a type of the one who is to come. What is he talking about in Romans 5? Romans 5, 12 to like 21, I think. No, 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 no. I mean, that's, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, so how, how did he function? You said priest, king. Is that it? All right, prophet, priest, king, right? So as a prophet, priest, and king, we, we see, we're, we're not saying, and, and by saying this, we're not trying to force anything on the text, right, in Genesis 1 and 2. But, but what we're seeing is we're seeing like little, little glimpses, like first little blossoms, right, of, of uh, or maybe like seed form of prophet, priest, and king. Like, as the prophet, he's the one who communicated to Eve and to the rest of his offspring, like, what God had said to him. And then as the priest, he's the one who was called to mediate God's presence uh, to, the rest of, to the rest of the world, right? He enjoyed God's presence. Uh, and as the king, he was supposed to exercise dominion over the world, subdue the earth, 
Name the animals. Like, show them who is in charge because you are serving as my vice regent. You're a a son. Image of God here is tied to sonship. Sonship and rule. Okay, we talked about that being the image of God. Um, All right, so Romans 5, um, what, what we have is we have the fall, right? Uh, and with the fall comes two different aspects that affects us with, with sin. We, we, in, we inherit a corrupted, polluted nature that's like pollution, and then we also inherit what? A certain standing. That, that would be, that would be the, the result um, on Judgment Day, but in justification, what is Jesus doing? He is, he is declaring us what? Right? Also, not, not guilty. So, so there's, there's guilt, there's guilt, and there's pollution. So in terms of like, what, why, would we, why would we say like um, that, that everyone born in Adam from the moment of conception has a sin nature? Well, it's not necessarily because they've sinned themselves yet, though they've been polluted and when given a chance, they're going to sin. But because of their standing before the Lord as guilty in Adam, because Adam served as our federal head, right? Okay, so prophet, priest, and king, we see that idea. Um, and so what, what was the command that we saw um, given to Adam? Be fruitful and multiply. That's right. Uh, and so Adam fails. We all die with him, judgment cut off from the Lord because a lot of these things are, are reversed or they're severed. Uh, image of God isn't lost, but it's tarnished, it's corrupted. And, and who's next? Noah? Yep. And what does is, what is Lamech's, uh, Noah's dad say about Noah? Yeah, maybe, maybe he'll deliver us from the curse. Because in Genesis 3, the curse, it thorns and all this kind of stuff, all the curse, sin and death. Uh, and, and Lamech is like, maybe he's going to be the one who will deliver us, which is why he called him Noah, right? Um, so Noah doesn't bring salvation, but rather judgment. The Lord judges the world through Noah. Uh, and what is, what is the command for Noah afterwards? Be fruitful and multiply. So, it's not that he's not a sinner, right? But you do see in Noah, you do see some federal headship, right? Not, not, not necessarily, not certainly not to the extent of Adam, but he is now the head of a, of a new earth, in a sense, right? He's the father, all right? So, um, image of God, what, what, is he, what does God say in Genesis 9? If somebody murders somebody else... What are you supposed to do with them? You're, suppo- you're supposed to 
use capital punishment, right? Why? Because man is made in the image of God. So we see image of God still there, but corrupted. All right. Um, <clears throat> in a way, you see a bit of this prophet, priest, and king as well. And what else do you see, especially with, with Noah's sin? Well, before he, we even get to sin, what are the commands that God gives him? Be fruitful and multiply. We need to put that here. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Be fruitful and multiply. What do you see as the result of that? Be fruitful and multiply. Noah sins. What happens? What's the result of Noah's sin? Yeah, nakedness and shame, right? What was, the, what was the result of sin over here with Adam and Eve? They were naked and ashamed. And Ham walks in on his dad drunk, drunk off the fruit, and there's nakedness and shame. Um, <clears throat> And so we see, like, Moses is building a story, right? And it's like, look at Noah, he's righteous. Man, he's a man of faith, and he can't be the guy. He can't be the guy. Um, all right, so moving forward, who do we see next? Next covenant, covenant head. Abraham, right? Um, and... What, is, what, is God, uh, what kind of blessing and command does God give to Abraham? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you offspring, I'll give you a land. So like promised Adam is I'll give you a son. And that, that son's going to crush the head of the serpent. Um, and here there's, there's a promise of a son. Um, the big command that he, he gives repeatedly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob slash Israel is be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, Adam, Adam enjoys a land, right? Noah enjoys a land. What does God promise to Abraham? A land, right? He's gonna he's gonna take him somewhere, and um, but uh, you know Abraham lies about his wife, and uh, lies her straight into uh, a couple of harems. Um, so Abraham can't be the hero, right? So then, who do we see next? Who is it, Grace? One more before David. One more before David. Who's, huh? Israel. Grace, Grace, you were, you were, sweetie, hey, hold on to it. 
Hold on to that. Hold on to that. I will call on you. Israel, uh, in, in Exodus, uh, Exodus 4, uh, God refers to, Yahweh refers to Israel as his what? Firstborn son, right? Let my son go to Pharaoh. Be fruitful, multiply. I'm going to bring you into a land. I'm, you're going to enjoy my presence. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. That pointing back to seventh day rest back there in Genesis uh, 2. And then uh, grace within the nation of Israel. Who do you see come up? Within the nation of Israel, who did you just say? No. David. You said David. You said David earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and in David, what is what does God promise David? A son. Promises a son. Uh, and that, that son's gonna sit on a throne. And so, like, when we're thinking about Adam in terms of dominion and rule, that kingly idea, right? Coming across, that's picked back up with Noah. The promise to Abraham is that kings will come from you. Um, and then, through the nation of Israel, Judah, hey, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Uh, and then, within the tribe of Judah, even more specifically... Um, David, David's promised a son who's going to rule forever. What does David provide the land? Peace and rest, right? Like, who, who does he defeat? He defeats everybody. He's, he defeats all of God's enemies, right? Uh, and so we see, again, glimpses of, like, pointing backwards, like topology does, pointing back to an earlier guy, but also pointing forward because, like, David's, family is a hot mess hot mess so if you're like man i'm really discouraged by my marriage and by my home like my kids are my kids talk back to me well none of them have ever chased you out of your kingdom in an attempt to kill you and then slept with all your concubines so you you know there is that uh there is that uh, so David, David is David becomes then this this picture that's picked up in the prophets. Like what does Isaiah say? Out of the stump of Jesse, uh, a shoot will come. A shoot of a shoot of Jesse. It's not even a shoot of David. It's a shoot of Jesse. It's a new David, a new and improved David 2.0, right? A stump, Davidic line looks dead, they're all in exile, uh, kingdoms split in half, Israel and Judah, and through Isaiah, God's promising, I haven't forgotten my promises, I'm going to deliver, going to deliver. Everything looks dead, Davidic line, they look like they're down for the count, right? Um, but out of a stump, David's, or the Lord's going to bring a new David, new life. Uh, but this David isn't going to be just like new David. It's going to be mighty God, everlasting Father. Um, and it, the government will rest on his shoulders. And now this new David, uh, what new creation themes are tied to that. Um, so anyway, then a lot, 
that's after David, but David himself starts to, you start to see a blending of the three offices of prophet, priest, and king again, right? Well, as a prophet, what does David do? David writes a lot of scripture. I mean, you read a lot of his psalms. So he's writing scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit. As, as a priest, what, what is he doing? He, he brings in the Holy of Holies, right? Brings it into the city. Wants to build a temple, our house for the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to build you a house. Um, <clears throat> and, but what, is, what does he write in Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord, okay, who does... Who is, okay, so one, obviously David's Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, who would be David's Lord if one of those guys is Yahweh? It's got to be, it's got to be a, a future king, right? Like his son. Uh, future Davidic king, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's for picking up on Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Uh, all the kingdoms will bow down to the sun. He'll rule with a scepter. Well, but in Psalm 110, it's not just king, right? He's also a priest. Uh, I'll make you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk more about Melchizedek and the work of Christ. But I'll make you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David, David, a 900 to 1,000 years before Christ, is already taking his prophet, priest, and king role that he's gotten from Adam that's then spread into three distinct offices within the nation of Israel because you've had the prophets like Elijah um, and Elisha and Isaiah and these guys. And you've had the priests ever since Aaron um, and, and, and the king starting with Saul. You've had these three offices. David's starting to, to bring them together himself in himself, but you know that he's not the one. Because he was promised a son, right? But he start, starts talking of his son as, as the future king priest. Uh, and then the prophets pick up on that, right? So with topology, we, we've, we have to have repetition, right? We're not, we're, this isn't allegorical interpretation. We're interpreting it according to the in, intentions of the authors. So we're reading it literally. We're picking up on repetition in the scriptures themselves, themes that the scriptures are clearly defining um, for us. We see important, important people or things, events, uh, and we see that, this, that across these patterns, ultimately, there's always an escalation in topology and, that, and the fulfillment is always who? That's right, Jesus. So, when you read Matthew, and he says, you know, um, Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and so Mary and Joseph went to, went to Egypt until he was safe, and then when he came back, uh, when he was a little bit older, uh, they came back into Israel and settled in uh, Nazareth, and uh, this was to fulfill Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, Hosea's talking about Israel, and Matthew's like, Yes. Yes, he is. Israel, my son, my firstborn son, let my son go. The servant of the Lord in, in the Isaiah. Who is that servant of the Lord in, in, in Isaiah's own writing? 
It's Israel. Israel is the servant of the Lord. But then Isaiah says stuff like, yeah, my servant Israel is going to bring Israel and Judah back to me. Wait a minute. Okay, you're inspired, so the problem's with me. So how can that be when we're picking up on Davidic kingship, right? King can say, I am Israel, right? I saw that in a show recently when it was like talking about um, British Empire and the queen was like, I am England. They're like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. All right, so who can be the last Adam in the true Israel other than a man? It's got to be a man. I mean, this is already, this is already being predicted through the typological patterns that the, that the Bible is giving for us. 3-2, uh, the promise of a son. Okay, the Messiah's got to be a son. Genesis 3.15, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 15, I'm going to give you an offspring and through whom all the nations are going to be blessed. Right? And in, in Israel, through David, I'm going to give you a son who's going to rule on the throne forever. And so, Old Testament expectation, even into Jesus' time, is they're looking for this son of David. They're looking for this son. So, uh, the way that I understand it, having had three sons myself, is that they've got to be human if I'm human and my wife is human. Right. So sons are human. Right. So again, if God's promising a son, then that son has got to be a man. Um, all right. So then, Timothy, Timothy was the first to pick it up. For us, when we were talking about uh, Abraham or uh, about Adam uh, on the inside, uh, three three, um, <clears throat> why? What does the biblical storyline require the Messiah? Well, a human one, and we see that in the in the office of prophet. Okay, um, <clears throat> angels come down and they and they give messages from the Lord, but that's not really often. That's not super often. That's pretty unique, right? But what God does do is he empowers, his, he empowers his people, men and women, from Old Testament and New Testament, to serve in the office of prophet. Uh, what does he promise in Deuteronomy 18 with Moses? Like, after Moses, what is God going to do? He's going to raise up another prophet like Moses from your midst. Right? Let's, look, let's, let's read Deuteronomy 18 because y'all are giving me some looks. Deuteronomy 18. I believe it says, to him you shall listen. The Lord your God, uh, verse 15, Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, Moses, prophet, priest, and king. Right? He was a Levite. He was a ruler of God's people prior to entering into the land. He was certainly a prophet. So we see in Moses, very similar to Adam. Um, <clears throat> prophet, priest, and king coming together in one man. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. What does the Lord say to the disciples uh, in the transfiguration? This is my beloved son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. All right, to, it is to him you shall listen. 
just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Okay? They're brothers. He's going to be a man. He's going to be an Israelite. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it, require it of him. And, what is, and then what does the author of Hebrews 1 tell us? That's right. Like the fullness of God's revelation has come and found its fulfillment in Christ. Right? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? The Word, the revelation of God himself. Jesus is a prophet. He is the great prophet to whom all prophets pointed. He's got to be like your brothers. He's coming out of your brothers, uh, out of your midst. Three, four. He's also a high priest. All right, uh, author of Hebrews tells us this uh, really specifically at the end of Hebrews 4 and then Hebrews 5 and uh, really, really, Hebrews 5, but Hebrews 5 through 10, he kind of outlines it. What does he say about the high priest? Well, what are the things that were required of the high priest? I mean, this is clearly in the book of Leviticus and what have you, but rather than bouncing around to 30 different passages, the author of Hebrews has kindly put it all together in one. He acts on behalf of the people. Yep, so he's a representative of the people. For every high priest chosen from, this is Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Okay? So, first off, he is chosen from men to represent men. Secondly, he is able to represent and to deal gently with other men. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. Okay, he knows what it is to be a frail man. The frailty of humanity. Now, that weakness also extends to sin itself. And so he's got, a, he's got an offer, a sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for, the, for those of the people. Um, and he is, he's called by God out of the people like Aaron was. And so what, what does the author of Hebrews say in Hebrews 5.5? 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, Psalm 110, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so, I mean, we're, we're really doing like 60,000 foot view on, in, in terms of priesthood here, but 
What did the high priestly office require? It required a man. It required a man to serve in that office. I hope that you're, I hope that you're seeing the point here that the Old Testament is clearly laid down. The Savior's got to be a man. He's got to be a man for a multitude of reasons. He's got to be a new Adam. He's got to be the true Israel. He's got to be the promised prophet. He's got to be the promised son. He's got to be the high priest. 3.5, he's got to be the promised king. 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David. God doesn't promise David an angel to sit on the throne. What does he promise him? 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he'll be to me a son. Um, the Davidic covenant required a man. Required a human son. Psalm 110 Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, if he's going to be David's Lord, he's going to be the Davidic, he's got to be, a, he's got to be a man. If he's going to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek, he's got to be a man. He's got to be a man. Throughout the prophets, it's going to be a man. So we see, we see in these typological uh, patterns or structures, the reality like, contrary to the emphasis last week where we strongly emphasized that Yahweh declares, I will come and save my people myself. Only I'm going to be able to save my people. And I'm going to do it. Uh, this week, the Lord, in his, in his wisdom, has got to solve the problem of how can, you, how can you come and save us and remain true to all of these promises and remain true to all of these offices and these patterns and types that you've laid out for yourself, it's almost like you backed yourself into a, a, a corner, Lord. And, of course, he doesn't, right? Because God comes in the flesh. Uh, so, in terms of biblical storyline, the storyline clearly points to the reality that the, this Messiah is to come. Jesus Christ has to be a man. So, when we look at these Christological heresies that want to downplay the real humanity of Christ, we've got to say, no, 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 no. that doesn't work with the storyline. That doesn't work with the storyline. So I'm doing this in part, one, because I'm just teaching the Bible. Secondly, because the temptation for many of us is, what does the Bible say about this let me go find a proof text. Let me search the Bible for a verse that answers this question explicitly. I mean, and proof, test, proof texts aren't necessarily wrong. But we need to read the Bible according to its own terms and categories. And we need to understand how it's revealing Christ in the myriad of ways that it does. Okay? It doesn't just start at Matthew 1. 
Okay, you've got a few thousand years of redemptive history prior to Christ that are all pointing to him and the necessity of a man to come and save God's people. So again, we want, we want to do good biblical theology, okay? And if you can't do good biblical theology, you are not going to do good systematic theology, okay? You're going to come to some doctrinal conclusions, but they're going to be probably wrong, or you're not going to be able to teach people how to do that other than pointing to a confession, right? Which confessions are great. They're wonderful, and we'll talk about them next week. But we want to be able to do theology rightly. We want to do theology the way that the apostles did it. And the, theo- the theology of the apostles is grounded upon biblical theology, the storyline of Scripture. All right, four. All right, so what's really important in the humanity of Christ is the virgin conception. The virgin conception. I mean, it's often said the virgin birth, but it's like, well, that's not really spectacular, right? Like, when, when you read the scriptures, like, I mean, you know, it was spectacular in that Mary pushed through normal childbirth pains, and I'm sure it was all the curse in the midst of and giving birth to Jesus, but the Bible doesn't present anything spectacular about the birth. It does present something spectacular about the conception, uh, and that is... The angel says to Mary, like, you're going to have a son, and, you're, and he's going to be, he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. And Mary's like, all right, I know I'm young. I mean, she would have been pretty young. I know, I, I know I'm young, but, like, I, I do have a basic grasp of biology. How, how is that going to happen? Exactly. Which is different than Zechariah. Zechariah is like, how am I to know this? Well, because the angel told you. Mary doesn't say, how am I supposed to know this? She's like, how does that work? Because that's, I, I, haven't, I haven't been with a man. And Mary gets to talk for nine months and Zechariah doesn't because of unbelief. All right, so let's, let's look at the virgin conception. Uh, the first glimpses of virgin conception, obviously we've already talked about the promise of a son. First glimpses of virgin conception is where? Isaiah. Isaiah what? Six. Six. You went the right way going the second time. You went too far. Seven. Isaiah seven. I'm pretty sure it's Isaiah seven fourteen. I want to say. I want to say it's Isaiah 7, 14. All right, so let's look at Matthew 1 and uh, Luke 1 because those are the ones that, that um, outline it, the, the, the conception and the birth for us. Uh, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay? And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, uh, clearly because he did not know that it was from the Holy Spirit, yet, 
uh, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, obviously, when they're talking about knowing, knowing a woman, that's talking about sexual intimacy. So Joseph did not engage, Mary did not engage sexual intimacy prior to the birth of Jesus, and yet Mary is pregnant, and the angel comes and says, listen, Mary is pregnant from the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's to fulfill, Matthew gives us, that is to fulfill Isaiah 7.14. Well, Luke, Luke gives us a little bit uh, of a better picture from Mary's perspective when we're looking at Luke uh, 1. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, so clearly angels picking up on Old Testament promises, right? Hey, remember David, remember these things that have been promised. He's going to sit on the throne. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? How's that going to happen? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. All right, now this is, this is important as we're thinking about it. So when we're thinking about the idea, the angel saying that the Holy Spirit will come over you, overshadow you. There are a couple of different pictures, I think, from the Old Testament that we can see. One is the Spirit hovering over the waters in creation. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit overshadowing uh, Mary we get the idea, okay, hold on now. This son to be born, who will be conceived, being cast in the same language as creation, this, this man is going to be the first one of the new creation. The Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary so that Jesus is conceived. And then you also think... Um, <clears throat> about the 
the divine cloud that would cover the Israelites, like overshadowing the Israelites in the desert. And that cloud was what? It was the presence of God. So you have both of these ideas like, okay, creation, new creation, and then presence of God coming down and causing a child to be conceived without an earthly father and without sexual intimacy but with an earthly mother. So if we're thinking about the virgin conception, okay, all right, so now now we start to understand how can God become a man and be truly man well, he can do that with a virgin conception when it is God who is overshadowing and fertilizing the human egg uh, to create this God, the Son incarnate. But how do you escape the idea like, well, Mary's a sinner. So is Jesus, is Jesus born in sin? Is Jesus born with a fallen nature? All right, so 4-1. The question is, sinless? Yes. 4-2. See, unfallen? Yes. How? And this is really, this is really like tricky. All right, this is, this is hard stuff. I mean, this is hotly debated. Um. That, that uh, the debate is not over whether or not Jesus is sinless in evangelical scholarship. The debate is whether or not the Son assumed a fallen human nature. Okay? So, I would argue, he's sinless, unfallen, human nature. Yes, yes, yes. How is it possible if Mary is a sinner? Well, there, there's a sense in which, like, Jesus... Is with, without an earthly father and a, the, the spirit causing Mary to conceive, there's a sense in which he's the first man in creation is now being born not in Adam. Because Adam's not his father. Right? But how does he not, I mean, so like, okay, so... Uh, we, we can't just say that, like, uh, yeah, you know, the, the fathers, you know, you contribute the, the chromosome that dictates whether or not it's a boy or a girl, and you pass the sin nature. Like, yeah, and all the women say, amen. Uh, false. False. Mute that microphone. Um, so it, that's not the case. Mary, Mary's, Mary's, in, Mary's a sinner. She's born in Adam. And so, how, how do you work this out? Uh, well, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism, Pius IX in 1854, would say, well, it's the Immaculate Conception. So, 3-4, the Immaculate Conception? To answer the question, how did Jesus escape not inheriting a sin nature? No, not the Immaculate Conception. We do not affirm the Immaculate Conception, Okay. The Immaculate Conception is not talking about Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is talking about Mary. Okay, so what they're saying is, oh, well, Mary, Mary was sinless. And so therefore, since she was sinless, she did not contribute a sin, 
sinful, fallen human nature to Jesus. Well, I mean, so that's certainly not true. Jesus died for Mary, too, to cover her sins. She was born in Adam. And really, that's just kicking the can down a generation, because it's like, well, hold on now, how did she become sinless? And they're like, the pre-immaculate conception, Mary's parents were sinless. I mean, you just keep going back and back and back, because you really can't answer the question of how could Mary be sinless. So we can't kick the can down the road. So we reject the Immaculate Conception. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Mary is not sinless. Uh, how, do, how do we think about God the Son becoming a man without inheriting a sin, sinful nature or fallen nature or being in Adam? And, I mean, this is, this is hard to do uh, in part because Scripture says so little about it. <clears throat> But when you look at Luke 1, and you, uh, in verse 35, And the angel answered, And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. New creation. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Like holy, as in like sanctified. The Son of God. So, so there's a sense in which Mary, Mary contributes a fallen nature in childbirth. And yet, the Spirit, overshadowing Mary, overwhelms it with its sanct- His sanctifying power so that this child who is to be born will be called holy. And so, as as much as there's mystery here, the reality is is that the angel clearly says the Spirit is going to overshadow you just like in creation. And this child, though you contribute sin, this child will be sinless, unfallen, son of God. Why? Because I will make him holy. Holy. So this child will be holy, so he will be sinless and unfallen. <clears throat> and, and it's important for us to understand that Jesus does not, or the Son of God did not have to become fallen. He didn't have to inherit a fallen nature in order to redeem us. Because, I mean, if you, so we think about it. What is the, what is the common, what's the common um, phrase when you talk about uh, people doing wrong things, making mistakes, to err is human. But the Bible would say, no, no, that's not. No, to air is fallen. Yeah, that's right. So was Adam and Eve less human prior to the fall? No. They were more human. Right? Like, so, so the standard of humanity is not us. The standard for true humanity 
is Jesus. He didn't inherit a fallen nature because to be truly human is to not be fallen. And if you think about it, if you're going to argue that it, to be human is to be fallen in its truest form, then what are you going to be in the new creation? Are you going to be like some quasi-angel creature or something? No, you're going to be fully human, fully glorified, unfallen, sinless. Jesus is undoing uh, the effects of the fall through his work. And so the, the idea of to err is human, while like it's, 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 it's true in every other instance in humanity because uh, out, outside of Jesus, it's only because of our sin nature that we inherited it from Adam. But that, that's not true humanity. Like we're being less human as we give ourselves to sin, not more human. Why? Because we are made in God's image. So the more that we are rightly relating to him, the more that we are rightly relating to others and to, the cre and to creation, we are being more human, truly human. That's why, like, guys, men and women in prison, they act less human, not more human. They, they are becoming more and more like creatures, like animals in the way that they relate to one another, not becoming more and more human. So we, we got to jettison this whole rehabilitative idea of, uh, in our judicial system when it comes to executing justice. So <clears throat> did Jesus have to sin in order to be our faithful high priest? Absolutely not. That would have made him not qualified for the job. Did he have to have a fallen human nature? No, because fallenness is not essential to humanity. It's abnormal. We just got billions of abnormal people. All right. All right, so the theological importance of the virgin birth it, it tells us ultimately salvation is from the Lord. Like we can't, we can't make the God-man. God himself has to become man. Salvation is from the Lord. Uh, the virgin conception uh, shows us Jesus is utterly unique in human history. Utterly unique. No other man like him. And he is the only one who can serve as our Savior. And then the virgin conception gives us categories to be able to understand how God can be man in one united person. The virgin conception gives us that. <clears throat> All right. Evidence for Christ's humanity from the Gospels. We're not going to go into all the texts, but y'all will, will know these um, these points. So evidence for Christ's humanity from the Gospels. All right, five one. Uh, Jesus was born and died. Jesus was born and died. There is no evidence that his birth was anything different than every other common birth that has ever occurred. 
in the history of humanity. His was just like everybody else's because why? He's a man, born of men. Jesus was born and he died. God can't die in his in and through his divine nature, but God the Son incarnate can die in and through his humanity, in and through a true and full human nature. And in fact, he must die if we were to have any hope. So Jesus was born and died. 5-2, Jesus had a real human body. Jesus had a real human body. We see that in, uh, what was it, Luke? Maybe Luke 22, maybe? Um, <clears throat> with Thomas, right? No, Luke 24. Look at my hands and my feet, right? Touch them. It's me. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a ghost. It's flesh and bones, as you have. Jesus had a real physical body. He was really nailed to a cross. He was really scourged and his back opened up. He really bled, and by his blood we are cleansed. He had a real physical body. If Christ didn't have a physical body, then there is no salvation. There's no death. There's no resurrection. And you've got proto-Gnosticism. 5.3, Jesus had a real human soul. Jesus had a real human soul. Jesus was an emotional man. Jesus had his own will. Now, we're going to talk about that next week when, it, when we're talking about uh, person, nature distinctions, and where to house and situate the will. But the church has historically understood that the, that the, the will, the will is tied to your nature. And so God the Son, the eternal Son of God, has always had a divine will. The same divine will shared with the Father and the Spirit. But in becoming a man, he also took upon himself a reasonable soul. He had an immaterial aspect to him so that he could suffer body and spirit so that we could be redeemed body and spirit so jesus had his own will a human will and a divine will in one person so that he could genuinely pray not my will father but your will be done jesus had a real human soul and that is great news for us who are going to die before his return because when we die though they put our bodies in the ground our spirits will go and be with the lord uh five four jesus grew in wisdom and stature right so like they take him to the temple when he's a young boy and he's like causing the the, the teachers to be amazed right and it, and it says that like he grew up like he became a teenager he he dealt with hormones, and he was a little boy, and he became a grown man. Uh, and he grew in wisdom as it related to understanding the Scriptures as a man. 
Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. That's only possible if he's a man. God can't grow in wisdom. He cannot. God can't grow in stature. Okay? He's immutable. Okay? He can't become more God, more divine than he already is. He is divinity fully encapsulated. He cannot grow in wisdom. He possesses all wisdom. But Jesus grew in wisdom, according to the scriptures, as a man. Uh, Jesus, 5-5, Jesus expressed ignorance. Matthew 24, no one knows the time or the hour, not even the sun. Now, how do, you, how, do you, how do you work that out in terms of like Trinitarian relations? Does the Son, does the Son not know the hour? Well, Jesus said that he didn't. But does the Son know the hour? Yes, he does. Because he shares one will, one spiritual essence, one nature with the Father and the Spirit, so that they know everything about everything about one another. Though they are three distinct persons, they share these things in the one divine nature. So he is speaking how? As a man. He's speaking in and through, like the Son in and through his humanity could tell them at that point, I I don't know the hour. The Father hasn't revealed that to me. The Son can only express any semblance of ignorance as a man. Yeah, I mean, if you want the question to be heard by the podcasters, the ones and ones of them. Would that, is this on? Is it working? It it is. It's recording. It's not the speakers. I said that up front early on. You did. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Um. Would that be similar to the woman who was bleeding and touched his robe and he, it says he sensed that power had left him? Um, yeah. Who touched me? Who touched me? Like yeah. so. I mean, it could have been rhetorical. It could have been rhetorical in that the Spirit, you know, revealed to him who the woman was. I, I don't know that it, I don't know that it was. I don't know that it was rhetorical. Because then she reveals herself, and he's like, your faith has made you well. Yeah. But we at least know very clearly, he says, I I don't know this. And he can only say that as a man. Because the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, in, in and through his divine nature, cannot say that he doesn't know things. He knows all things, exhaustively. Uh, five, six. Jesus grew tired. Five, seven, Jesus was hungry. Jesus grew tired. Jesus grew tired. The man had to sleep. God never sleeps, right? He never sleeps, which is utterly astounding. He never, the, our, our sovereign God never tires, never grows weary, Never sleeps, never experiences fatigue, but Jesus grew weary and tired. 
and he had to sleep. Fell asleep on, like, so tired he fell asleep in boats when there were, like, colossal storms happening, you know? Like, that man is a deep sleeper right there. That is a man sleeping, knowing who he is in relation to the Father. Imagine that peaceful kind of sleep. No anxiety when you, when you close your eyes and you wake up. Uh, Jesus was hungry. He went into the wilderness, right, to be tempted by the devil. And uh, after 40 days of not eating, it says, the text says, and he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry after 40 minutes of not eating. And my waistline shows it. Jesus was hungry. God doesn't get hungry. God doesn't eat. But God the Son incarnate, he eats. And he's going to eat with us. Marriage, supper of the Lamb, right? So he ate before the cross. He ate as a glorified, risen, resurrected Savior after the cross, right? Because he's like cooking. He's cooking fish. Yeah, right on the beach. He's got that for Peter. Come on, Peter. I got us some fish. Eats, eats breakfast with Peter and restores him. And he's got us this massive banquet, marriage supper of the Lamb, where there are going to be like millions, millions and millions, uh, possibly billions and billions of people eating together the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Jesus was hungry. So what, what, is it, what does it show that Jesus was born and died? Jesus had a real human body. Jesus had a real human soul. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus expressed ignorance. Jesus grew tired. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was a man. God the Son was a man. God the Son was a man. Why Six, why did God become man? That's true. Uh, a quote, very common, popular quote from an early church father, Gregor, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, that which is not assumed is not healed. Or that which is not assumed is not redeemed. So why did God become man? God became man. He assumed humanity so that he might heal and redeem humanity. First uh, John. And we'll close with these two passages that uh, if we talk about them too much, they'll kind of spoil our talk on the work of Christ as we talk about the atonement in, in the two or three weeks. Yeah, so a little bit of a spoiler alert, just in case you don't know the end of the story. All right. All right, yeah, if you, if you don't want to hear the spoilers, earmuffs, don't close your ears. First John 4, 2 to 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. God. All right, Hebrews 2. And if you want to see some, I mean, we could spend an hour and a half in Hebrews in Hebrews 2. Author of Hebrews is, I mean, just brilliant. When you're looking at Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, for it was 
not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. All right, what psalm is that? I mean, you can look in the, in the footnotes. No, not Psalm 2. Psalm, yeah, that's my, my, my cheater. Uh, psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Who is the psalmist talking about there? We talked about him at the very beginning. He was over there on the left. Adam. 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 What is man? Adam. That you are mindful of him. Who wrote Psalm 8? David. David. Are we starting to see some like typological patterns here that are coming together? What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the author of Hebrews says here, Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone the author of hebrews quotes a psalm speaking of adam written by david and then tells you jesus has fulfilled it this is the this is the fulfillment the son who was made for a little while lower than the angels who's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so, by, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we see just in the first four verses of this section that Jesus became, or the Son became a man in order to fulfill God's original intention for humanity, to fulfill the Adamic role, right? All right, continue reading. For while it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Uh, so we see this, this idea that uh, the author of Hebrews says um, <clears throat> Jesus, as the, as the, the last Adam, uh, who made everything and for whom everything was made, uh, God made this founder of our, our salvation perfect through suffering. He was perfected. Now, does that mean that there was some kind of, like, shortcomings in Jesus? Or, like, any kind of uh, moral um, deficiency? So what does it mean when, when the author of Hebrews is saying that he, was, that he was perfected through suffering? His work is what? You're so close. Even more specific uh, as a representative of what? 
Yeah. More specific. More specific. The founder of their salvation through suffering, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What, what is sanctification? What, what is that talking about? Being made more holy, right? What is holiness? What office are we talking about when you're talking about holiness? Priesthood. So, the author of Hebrews, do you say that, Bethany? Do you say priest? Well done. So, what, what does the author of Hebrews say? Jesus was perfected as our high priest through his sufferings. He was perfected in his role as our high priest through the sufferings that he endured for our sake. All right, what else did this, did this man do? God the Son incarnate. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. All right, so what I want you to see in each of these sections here, the first one with Psalm 8, being crowned with glory and honor, okay, fulfilling the Adamic role. What does that require of the Son? That he be what? He be man, he be human. What does it demand? I mean, it, it should tell us that. Like clear, It clearly tells us that in Psalm 8, right? What is man that you're mindful of him? In the second section, 10 to 13, how is he perfected? How is he bringing many sons to glory? How is he telling of God's name to his brothers? How is that possible? He has to be human. He has to be a man. How is it possible for him to defeat the devil? In verses 14 to 16. Through death, okay, so like he's got to be a man to die, right? Right? But who does he help? He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So people. And then he helps specifically the offspring of Abraham. So like humans, people. Right? So like... Defeating, defeating the devil in Hebrews 2, like what is that a fulfillment of? What promise? Genesis 3.15. He'll crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent will bite him in the heel, right? Well, he, he bit him in the heel by killing him. But it was actually through death that he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Yeah, boom roasted. Got him. All right, so promise of a son, Genesis 3.15, you've got to be a man. Gotta, he's got to be a man to be, to be able to fulfill that promise and defeat the devil. He's got to be like his brothers. He's got to be a man to help the offspring of Abraham and to endure death himself. Verses 17 and 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffer, suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So he's got to be, in order to be a faithful high priest, he's got to be what? He's got to be, a, yeah, he's got to be human. He's got to be a man. He's got to be able to sympathize with us. He's got to be able to represent us. I can't have an angel serve as my representative. An angel has n- no idea what it is to be a man. But we do have a merciful and faithful high priest because he has been made like his brothers in every respect. So the humanity of Christ, absolutely essential for our salvation. Last week, the deity of Christ, absolutely essential to our salvation. So the question now becomes, how do you put that together? How, 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 does, how does little baby Jesus, being held by Mary, also sustain the universe by the word of his power simultaneously? Because the Bible says he does both. He is both held and tired and hungry, and yet he upholds all things. He doesn't get hungry, yet he feeds everyone, and he doesn't sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep simultaneously. Well, we've got to have we've got to have a Yahweh King to be able to save us. So the church has spent a good bit of time to be able to help us to think about these things rightly, and so we're going to uh, we're going to spend some time looking at how the ch- how the early church and how the church has historically put those things together to be able to come to right theological conclusions as it relates to like person and nature distinctions because um, we, we got to avoid heresy if we want to inherit the kingdom, right? Like we can't hold fast to something that's not true. We can't hold to a non-divine Jesus and be saved. But we also can't hold to a, a non-human son and be saved. We've got to hold to the God, the Son incarnate in order to be saved. So we need to rightly understand these things. Avoid the heresies that are so common around us. And we can talk about some of those next week. Um, And then we can start transitioning to the work of Christ. What did he accomplish? For whom did he work and die and save? All those questions will... What is the nature of the atonement? We'll talk about all those in the weeks to come. All right. Any questions before we close up? Thanks for coming this evening. All right. No questions. All right. Let's pray.